Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mic check, mic check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Word up. That. Biblical, biblical, theology, theology, study, the person of God, attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet, so please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology, that phrase alone that gives some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough, uh-huh. just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God the key is following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication, a work of art from Genesis to Revelation, from God's creation, to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11:36. Biblical theology encompasses who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes. So clever we behold his endeavors unfold. The greatest, greatest story, story ever, ever told. told. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got See the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word providing us correction and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our reflections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our death, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. All right, welcome to another edition of Theology Matters, and I am your host, Devin Palou. 
And we have a, a great show for you guys today. We are going to be looking at the topic of Jehovah's Witnesses. And we are going to be examining uh, their views in light of biblical theology. Some of the dangers uh, that is inherent with the theology of the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, why we should really care about some of these issues, because uh, the language is often kind of smuggled in and used as uh, Christian language, and the terms are often same terms are used, yet, of course, the meanings are, will be very different, and what you end up with is a very different religion. And so uh, we are going to uh, be looking deep into that issue with one of my uh, professors from Southern Evangelical Seminary, Dr. Brian Huffling. So he will be on uh, in about uh, 25 minutes or so, so stay tuned for that. Um, if you have not liked us on Facebook, be sure to go to our uh, our Facebook page. Uh, it is um, facebook.com slash theology matters with the Palouse. Facebook.com slash theology matters with the Palouse. Be sure to like us. And if you go there, what you'll see is a lot of our uh, shows that we have done, uh, such as shows um, on the occult. In fact, we, we did a show recently with uh, our good friend Marcia Montenegro, who I'm excited uh, to announce will be doing a, kind of a monthly, uh, kind of a 30-minute or 20-minute clip uh, each month with us, kind of giving us the latest uh, news in the world of the occult. Uh, but we have done shows with her, so she was on recently, and we looked at the New Age and how a lot of that is infiltrating the church and Christian theology, and how we can respond to some some of those uh, uh, bigger issues. Uh, we've also had a lot of debates on the show, and uh, we've done Protestant versus Catholic on Sola Scriptura. We've done Mormonism versus Christianity on the nature of God, and have had uh, Matt Dillahoney from the Atheist experience and who was uh, who recently did a debate uh, with uh, a guy who is kind of catching some um, not fame but he's he's gaining a little traction in the uh, world of apologetics uh, named Psy and uh, that was a debate that recently took place and so yeah if 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 you want to go on our Facebook page uh, like us, you will be able to find our podcasts as well as our uh, debates and other shows that we have done. Uh, and that brings me to a special announcement I was going to tell everyone about. We had put an announcement up on our, on our Facebook page. Um, July 15th, we will be hosting another debate, and it will be between uh, Nathan Taylor who has been on this uh, show a few times and has, has done a debate uh, against the Catholic on Sola Scriptura, and he also uh, defended the Reformed view uh, against Jordan Fischel on um, kind of Calvinism versus Arminianism. Uh, but he will be on to debate Chris Date. And Chris Date 
has also been on this show. He is from, uh, I think, RethinkingHell.com is the website. Uh, one of the one of the most popular uh, debates we have done was with both of those, actually, both Chris and Nate in their debates. Um, so Chris is going to be debating... Chris is going to be debating uh, Nathan Taylor on that issue, so it will be a very, very good debate. Uh, so set your calendars for that June 15th. It's going to be a great time. So with with that being said, um, I'm going to go ahead and, and play a clip. We're supposed to have a, a gentleman call in, but uh, he's not... He has not able, uh, been able to call in yet, so I'm going to go ahead and pay, play a clip that I've been been wanting to uh, address. It's of Richard Dawkins, and in this he is he is mocking um, religion and those who hold to a, a belief in the existence of God. So, uh, those who don't know, uh, Richard Dawkins is uh, very. Uh, outspoken atheist. He's written several books. He's primarily a biologist. And uh, as a biologist, he's written such books as uh, The Blind Watchmaker, uh, Climbing Mount Improbable, The Selfish Gene. And uh, his books have been pretty much pretty kind of primarily uh, dealing with evolution. And so he has uh, kind of as of late started to write books that were really kind of going after um, the existence of God. And so uh, probably the most famous one that he has done is The God Delusion. And uh, this book is very popular if you have college students or high school students. Uh, there's a good chance that they know all about this book because it is it is a very popular level um rant, really, is what it is, against um, belief in the existence of God, but specifically the Christian God. And so uh, what I wanted to do is play a little bit of this clip, and then uh, we'll talk about it. At this point, I need to acknowledge the remarkable taboo against speaking ill of religion. And I'm going to do so in the words of the late Douglas Adams, a dear friend who, if he never came to TED, certainly should have been invited. He was? He was, good. I thought he must have been. He begins this speech, which was uh, tape recorded in Cambridge shortly before he died. He begins by explaining how science works through the testing of hypotheses that are framed to be vulnerable to disproof. And then he goes on, I quote, Religion doesn't seem to work like that. It has certain ideas at the heart of it which we call sacred or holy. What it means is, here is an idea or a notion that you're not allowed to say anything bad about. You're just not. Why not? Because you're not. <laughs> Why should it be that it's perfectly legitimate to support the Republicans or Democrats, this model of economics versus that, versus that, Macintosh instead of Windows, but to have an opinion about how the universe began, about who created the universe, no, that's holy. So we are used to not challenging religious ideas. And it's very interesting how much of a furore Richard creates when he does it. He meant me, not that one. 
Everybody gets absolutely frantic about it because you're not allowed to say these things. Yet when you look at it rationally, there is no reason why those ideas shouldn't be as open to debate as any other. Except that we've agreed somehow between us that they shouldn't be. And that's the end of the quote from Douglas. In my view, not only is, is science corrosive to religion, religion is corrosive to science. It teaches people to be satisfied with trivial, supernatural non-explanations and blinds them to the wonderful real explanations that we have within our grasp. It teaches them to accept authority, revelation and faith instead of always insisting on evidence. Now there's a typical scientific journal, the Quarterly Review of Biology, and I'm going to put together, uh, as guest editor, uh, a, a special issue on the question, did an asteroid kill the dinosaurs? And the first paper is a standard scientific paper pre presenting evidence, iridium layer at the KT boundary, potassium argon dated crater in Yucatan, indicate that an asteroid killed the dinosaurs. Perfectly ordinary scientific paper. Now the next one. The President of the Royal Society has been vouchsafed a strong inner conviction that an asteroid killed the dinosaurs. <laughs> it has been privately revealed to Professor Huxdane that an asteroid killed the dinosaurs. Professor Haldley was brought up to have total and unquestioning faith <laughs> that an asteroid <laughs> killed the dinosaur. <laughs> Professor Hawkins has promulgated an official dogma binding on all loyal Hawkinsians that an asteroid killed the dinosaurs. <laughs> That's Inconceivable, of course. Well, there you have it. Uh, it's it's uh, Dawkins, really at his best, uh, going after easy targets, low-hanging fruit. Uh, would not never engage um, with real Christian philosophers or apologists, at least the, the ones that he has. Uh, such as John Lennox, and I would even say, um, I think it was uh, Bishop or Cardinal Newman. I'm trying to remember his name. Um, he definitely got, uh, he definitely got, uh, I thought, uh, exposed pretty good in, in in all of his debates with John Lennox. And that that uh, I think it was only one debate with the uh, one of the I think it was a cardinal or a bishop, someone. Um, and so, but but there you have it. And the thing is, is I agree with a lot of what he says as far as um, being able to think and being able to question things. Yeah, I grew up in a in a home where, um, and I don't say this to uh, you know bag on my parents or anything. I've got wonderful parents, uh, but they had just came out of Mormonism. And the, the Christian faith was very new to them. And so they were dealing with issues like the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, the authority of the Bible, those type of things. Uh, they, were, they were working through and trying to learn and understand. And 
my more of my issues were the scientific uh, objections. I didn't understand how you know how does evolution fit in, how do dinosaurs fit into the Bible, uh, some of those type of questions. And I think what I think it's been demonstrated. Um, what happens is uh, the kids will go to college. They grow up in a Christian home. Uh, they will go to a college, a secular college, and they are just bombarded with a bunch of objections uh, to the to the Christian faith. Um, how do you know God exists? You know, science has disproven the existence of God. Uh, the 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 books of the Bible weren't uh, written by the authors, and they're written down hundreds of years later. The Bible's not reliable. Um, and those type of things. And then, you know, the problem of evil. Maybe some of these things that they thought through, maybe on a surface level, but now sitting in a college philosophy class with the atheist philosopher uh, are being confronted with this. And they're in a classroom full of hostile students and hostile professors. And now they're having to deal with these issues. And they go home and they talk to their parents and the parents normally don't know don't know how to deal with this and so they will they will set up a meeting with the pastor and they'll talk to the pastor and but one of the biggest problems is the pastors really don't know how to deal with this and so some of the answers might be well you know you just uh, you need to have faith we don't really know how to explain a lot of these things uh you just need to believe, uh, you know, that's just, it's just the devil trying to make you doubt type of thing. And to be honest, folks, it's just not a satisfactory answer. Uh, of course, we can't know everything, right? I'm not saying that. I'm not saying we, uh, uh, we can know every answer to every question. But we should be able to deal with some of the basics. And I fear a lot of times uh, we're not equipped to do that. And so I think Dawkins makes some good points in that um, the idea that, you know, if it's, a, if it's your religion or your faith, we shouldn't question that. That somehow that is, uh, that is in a different sphere of um, knowledge or truth. And that's dangerous. I think that's, I think that's very dangerous. I think <clears throat> as Christians, we should be able to hold our view up to scrutiny, and if it's true, it will, it will pass. If the Christian faith is true, then the evidence will confirm it. Philosophical arguments will confirm it. Scientific findings will confirm it. History will confirm it. So we don't have to run from it. Now, there's certain things such as, you know, science cannot prove the, you know, ID arguments, for example, are not going to prove uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, for example. And uh, there's a, a recent clip on with uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson on, I think it was the Huffington Post. And of all people, they're responding to, to they, they basically catch Jill Osteen off guard, and they're asking him, uh, what, you know, how do you explain the, the anthropic principle? And the, the fine-tuning of the universe. Now, Joel Osteen is neither qualified as a scientist, nor is he qualified as a theologian. 
to talk on those matters. He has no formal training in either. And in my personal opinion, I think Osteen is a disgrace to the Christian faith. I don't think he. I don't think he. Uh, I don't think he preaches the Christian faith at all. I think it's a pagan view. Uh, and so, of course, Huffington Post, instead of going and asking someone like Dr. Stephen Meyer, who just published his uh, second big bombshell book, Darwin's Doubt. Uh, by the way, recently has just come out in paperback with a chapter responding to the critics, or uh, his book Signature in the Cell, a 700-page tome on the information, uh, in origin of information, which is yet to be answered. Uh, you've got uh, Dr. Jay Richards, who's been on this show, him and Guillermo Gonzalez, uh, co-authored the book The Privileged Planet, which, which specifically deal with the anthropic principle. Uh, and of course, you, you know, no, they're not gonna, <laughs> they're not gonna go after those guys. They're not gonna ask them. Uh, you know, how do you deal with Carl Sagan's, you know, the pale blue dot? No, we're gonna go after someone like Joe Osteen because he's popular, he's famous, and he's an easy target because he doesn't know. Not only does he not know the science, he doesn't know theology. And so Osteen gives this just incredibly weak, ridiculous, silly answer. And uh, so they ask, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson to respond. And, of course, Tyson is an astronomer, and he knows the science, and he knows the arguments uh, somewhat, not not real well. I think someone like uh, William Lane Craig or something like that would destroy Tyson in a debate, frankly. And I say that with all due respect. Uh, Dr. Tyson is a brilliant man. Um, but he does not seem to be familiar with the other side at all. And so, uh, but to piss him up against someone like Joel Osteen, of course, you know who's going to win that one. Uh, and so, of course, uh, Tyson goes on this big explanation as to why, you know, uh, he does not, uh, he's not going to debate anybody's religion with them. He's not going to tell them not to believe in it, but he is going to say, uh, the answer that you just heard from Joel Osteen has no business in a science classroom. No business in a science classroom. And guess what? I agree. That kind of answer, not only should it not have a place in a science classroom, that kind of answer should have no place in a Christian theology chat room. Because it was a non-explanation, it was it was terrible. Uh, but the the problem is this, folks. Now ID is somehow measured by what Joel Osteen says, and so now ID it just offers just religious arguments. It just offers, uh, you know, the, tries to explain it through the basis of having faith. But see, that's weak. That is that is not how ID theorists defend the view. And if Huffington Post was seriously uh, looking for a real answer and wanted to know, how do Christians respond to things like the fine-tuning argument? Well, you don't go after Joel Osteen. You don't go after Joel Osteen. You go after people that actually have some science background and people who write on the topic. It would be like, uh, you know, going to Bill Maher for a detailed theory of evolution. 
Bill Maher is an atheist. Bill Maher is a popularizer. Uh, he likes to, uh, uh, frankly, shoot his mouth off and go after uh, anybody that believes in the existence of God and tries to shame them with ridicule and mockery. But my point is this. If you want to know a detailed answer to uh, how, what, you know, what does the Darwinist say to irreducible complexity or the fine-tuning argument or the origin of information, right? If you're seriously wanting to know how those objections are answered, you don't go to Bill Maher. You would go to, to someone who has the degrees in biology or in cosmology, and uh, But, you know, for whatever reason, with the Christians, it's perfectly acceptable to go to people that have no type of authority on the issue at all, who don't know what they're talking about, and then you, you, you try and represent, uh, that's, yeah, that's what Christians believe. That's how, uh, you know, ID is religious. And it's, it's, it's just, uh, it's frustrating, folks. It's very, very frustrating. The arguments for ID, whether you agree that they are they're valid or sound, they are scientific in nature. They're not religious. You know, I've been teaching for the last uh, five months a group of homeschool students through the Discovery Institute uh, course called um, Discovering Intelligent Design. Now, in that course... We have not brought up the Bible one time. And the course does not bring up the Bible. The course is dealing with the scientific arguments for intelligent design. So they're going to give example uh, with information theory. They're going to go over complexity and, um, and specified complexity. Is information complex? Is it specified? They have different types of filters that they use to uh, see if something is just, whether it's de design, uh, chance, or necessity. But the, the point is this. Whether you agree with the arguments from design or not, the arguments themselves are scientific and philosophical in nature. So they're not coming and saying, God, uh, you know, the God of the Bible created the universe, and Genesis 1 says so. Uh, if, it's do if they were doing that, then yeah, that would be a religious argument. Uh, but the folks from, from the Discovery Institute are not. Now, you do have groups that do do that. So, for example, you have um, answers in Genesis and even uh, reasons to believe uh, will do that. Um, now, they will offer additional evidence, so they're not just saying uh, you should believe it only because the Bible tells you. Uh, they'll, they'll give reasons um, to support their view, uh, but there is, yeah, there's definitely a, a aspect of, uh, of um, religion as one of the uh, – or the existence of the Christian God as the grounding of their of their uh, beliefs, and, and they say that. So with intelligent design, the difference is it's not rooted in Genesis, right? They don't they don't argue that way. So even with the Discovery Institute, you have people that uh, are non Christians on staff. I think Jonathan Wells, uh, for example, is a Unitarian. So not not everyone there is a, is a Bible believing Christian. And intelligent design <clears throat> can't can't tell you who the designer is. It can tell you some certain maybe attributes about the designer, but it can't speak to who the designer is. 
So we just say all that to say, um, you know, you hear these popularizers like Dawkins and like Bill Maher and Neil deGrasse Tyson. Uh, these guys are not serious uh, about engaging with real level Christian arguments. They're not. It's easy to go after Joe Osteen and have him try and give an explanation of intelligent design and then just mock Christianity uh, based on that level. But if the Huffington Post is serious about wanting to know what Christians think about these issues, then they need to go and, uh, and they need to listen to real uh, design theorists, philosophers, and those in the sciences. That's that's what you do if you're if you're if you want to be fair and you want to be intellectually honest. You don't go after soft targets like Jill Osteen. So with that said, we were, are going to go ahead and take a break, and uh, when we come back, we are going to have Dr. Brian Huffling on, and we are going to look at uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. And uh, kind of how do we deal with them? I think we've all uh, had that where they uh, end up on the on our on our front doors, and uh, <laughs> uh, we kind of wonder, you know, how do we how do we deal with these guys? Uh, because we're not we're not used to it. We're not used to uh, to having people show up on our doorstep and ready to uh, engage us and wanting to wanting to engage us and actually knowing how to engage us. And so we need to know, how do we answer some of these things that come up? So we're going to come back with uh, Brian Huffling, and we are going to, we're going to look at how, how exactly the best way uh, we can answer some of these big objections that come. So hang with us. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. Apologist. We interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. Frank, is truth true for you, but not for me? I always hear that, and I usually say, is that true for everybody? Is true for you, but not for me, true for everybody? Because if true for you, but not for me, is true for everybody, then true for you and not for me can't be true because it's true for everybody. (laughs) I know that can give you intellectual constipation, but that's because it's self-defeating. It's actually, there's an easier way of illustrating this. True for you, but not for me. Say, sure, go try that with your bank teller. Go to your bank teller one day and say, look, I'd like $100,000 out of my account. The bank teller looks at your account and says, I'm sorry, sir, you only have $47.16 in your account. That's easy to get the money. Bobby, you simply say, that's true for you, but not for me. Give me the 100 grand. Are you going to get the money? No, you're not. If it's true, there's only $47.16 in your account. That's true for all people at all times and all places when referring to your account at that time. It's just true. And by the way, it's true that Jesus rose from the dead. If he really did, that's true for all people at all times and all places. If he really did. Of course, it's not true if he didn't rise from the dead. And I think the evidence is quite strong that he did. So saying it's true for you but not for me may sound good. It's the mantra of our culture. But it's self-defeating. It's logically self-defeating. And it just doesn't work. Sounds like you're trying to say that truth corresponds to reality. I am. I'm actually (laughs) trying to say that. Here's a Renewing Your Mind Minute with Dr. R.C. Sproul. The situation at the time of the flood was a situation of pure moral relativism, where everybody did what was right in their own eyes. It sounds like a description that was written in yesterday's newspaper. 
And when God destroyed all of that, the descendants of Noah come up with an idea to do exactly the same thing. They're going to build their own city, a city that will endure. And the crowning achievement of that city will be the tower that reaches up to heaven. The tower of Babel. For today's special offer, visit renewingyourmind.org. All right, welcome back to Theology Matters with the Palouse, and glad to have you guys back. And uh, I want to go ahead and, and jump into our uh, second section of the show. Just a reminder again, uh, June 15th, we will be hosting the debate between Nathan Taylor and Chris Date on uh, the topic of annihilationism. And uh, that is going to be a trauma shift. That is, it's, you're not going to want to miss that debate. It will be very, uh, very interesting for sure. So, with that being said, let me go ahead and introduce our second, uh, in our second segment here, our guest, uh, Dr. Brian Huffling. He's a director of undergraduate program and assistant professor of philosophy and theology at Southern Evangelical Bible College and seminary, and that is actually where I go to school at, so very good school. Dr. Heffling, are you there? Yes, sir. Can you hear me? can hear you loud and clear. Can you hear me okay? Yep, sure can. Thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Ah, glad to have you on. Did I, did I leave anything out? I know you're... No, that's great. Uh, Sounds good. Okay, good, good deal. Um, I guess kind of before we, we start, I guess we should uh, talk a little bit about why should we care as 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 Christians about this uh, view. We, we, we heard the kind of the, the commercial with uh, Turek there talking about relativism. Um, why should we care? I mean, it, why not just let people believe what they want to believe, and why should we even engage them or try to change their mind? Well, when we're discussing the issue of theology, and as the name of your show indicates, theology matters, and because when we think about God and uh, the Bible, who God is and what God is and what happens to us after death and what all this means, you know, these are the most important questions we can ask. And it does only matter if it's true, because if the relativist is right and there really is no truth, but everything is just true in the eyes of each individual, then it doesn't matter. But the Christian message is that it is true and that Jesus is the only way uh, to salvation. He is the uh, way, the truth, and the life. And it's important because we believe it is true. And part of the message of the gospel, the gospel being a message of, of both reckless recklessness on the part of man and being sinful and yet grace and mercy on the part of God, is that while we are sinners, God has sent his Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, to save us and to reconcile us to be with God forever and ever. But the opposite of that is if we reject Christ, if we don't hold to what he taught or what he teaches and what he stands for, then we will reject him and then he will reject us. And so we believe as Christians, or Orthodox historical Christians, that the gospel is true, there is a heaven and there is a hell, 
and that therefore we need to be evangelizing folks out there. And we believe that in the case of the Jehovah's Witnesses, they have a false message and false gospel, and that while what they may bring to our doorstep may sound like Orthodox Christianity to the average person, once we really look at their scriptures and look at their message, we find that it is a distortion of the truth, a distortion of God's word, and therefore a false gospel. And if that's the case, then leading people astray from, from God. And that's why I support it. Yeah, so ideas have consequences, don't they? That's right. Now, I've often said, you know, too, it's, it's you know, what better way to be able to... Uh, to share your faith, here we have these these people a lot of times showing right up at our doorsteps. You don't even have to get have to get up and and uh, and leave your house, and they're they're coming to you. What better opportunity? That's right. people us. Yeah, yeah, and I know you know for a while I would be nervous of you know people coming, and you don't know. And I think a lot of times that's what it is. People are just. Uh, they don't know how to respond. They don't know how to answer to uh, some of the uh, objections that they're going to hear, and so they they don't really want to uh, engage. So I guess that would be, I mean, that would be another reason to study this topic so you're not uh, muzzled, so to speak. Would you say that? Exactly. I mean, we, um, it's it's just the case that, like anything else, uh, studying something as lofty as this and in depth and with the breadth of these issues that we're all going to be unprepared to start with. And even with, uh, you know, I have a master's degree and a Ph.D. in these areas, and even having a lifetime of doing this is not going to prepare you for everything that's going to happen. And so we just we just have to realize that we don't have to be experts to be evangelists or to be apologists, that we are going to learn as we go. There's a ton of information and a ton of resources. I'm hoping to share some of those resources with you and your listeners. And it's just getting out there and doing it and making mistakes. And we're, we're going to not know all the answers. I don't know all the answers. No one does. The experts who do this for a living don't know the answers. And so, of course, the people who, who aren't in school for this, who aren't doing this as a career, aren't either. But that doesn't mean that we can't make a difference. Um, because the people who come to us, who, who come to our doorstep, more often than not, they're not experts either. They have been told basically what to say. They've been indoctrinated in what to say. And they're really not prepared normally for any kind of challenge. So it takes a lot of courage on their part. And but we have the truth. So we we can we're gonna make mistakes, but if as long as we're trying, as long as we're presenting the gospel and, and loving people, it's not about just winning an argument. We have to mm. understand that these are people we're dealing with. It's not just about trying to be uh the big bad apologist or the big bad debater or just to come out on top. Of course you want to do that, and that's our humanity coming out. But we do have the truth, and the truth is is that these are human beings. And oftentimes when we come out against these people, with, uh, against their beliefs rather, with our beliefs and with our, our uh, knowledge and uh, whatever we have, our, our, our books, our arguments, whatever, it's, it's offensive, and we have to understand that these things are going to take time. And I've had a lot of people come to my doorstep. Most of them have been Mormons. I haven't had, I haven't had any interaction with them, just with women as much as Mormons. And normally, you don't expect anything to happen in your first meeting or second meeting or maybe ever. I've, I've had uh, several Mormons come to my house for weeks on end or months on end, became friends, had them over for dinner, and just, be, you know, just hung out. 
had and had a good conversation. And you normally aren't going to see a whole lot of of uh, conversion or fruit right then and there. We just have to remember that we're not called to uh, make people reborn. We're called to share the gospel and to defend it. And we're going to start mm-hmm. off as babies and doing that, and we're going to learn and grow as we do it. And so just if, you, if you're listening and you don't know what you're doing and you don't know how to start, then you're in the right place. Um, thanks for listening to the show. Uh, we all, we're all starting in, in this uh, as babies, and we just grow as, as we do it. Yeah, that's, that's that's good. I like I really really like that. I think one of one of the important points you bring out too is, uh, uh, you know, we're not we we can't save anybody. That's the work of God. Uh, but it's it's you know He uses the means of uh, the gospel and uh, I would say apologetics as well. One of the things that, right. that Greg Kokel says a lot of times is when he's in the dialogue, he's not trying to convert the person on the spot. A lot of times what he's trying to do is put a rock in their shoe, so to speak. Uh, so they're <laughs> yeah. going to walk away kind of thinking about some of these some of these issues. And so right. I guess you, you'd probably agree with, with that as well. Exactly. And, and really, all, that's all we're doing. We're trying to put the rock in the shoe. We have to understand that we're, we're probably not going to see anything when they come to us for several reasons. One, they're almost always going to be with somebody else. And the peer pressure is going to be that they, they cannot convert because normally if a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness, Jehovah's Witness converts, that's going to, to bring drastic impact and changes on that person's life, maybe even being ostracized by his friends and family. And so we're not wow. dealing with somebody's beliefs. We're dealing with somebody's life and their lifestyle and their family. And we just have to put that in God's hands. And we, we're not called to just change everybody on the spot, but I just have focal said, and I, I like that, that's, that's very good, is to put the rock in the shoe and to give them something to think about. We, in fact, one of the ways we do this is just by asking questions. We don't even have to present our argument necessarily. We just ask questions. Just listen to people. Let them talk, because oftentimes people don't get the chance as to uh, when they come to people's doorstep, they, don't, they aren't met with uh, people who want to hear them or listen to them. They're met, even my pastors, they don't want to listen to them. They just want to shut the door in their face, and they might give them a quick verse, whatever, and, and want to go about their day. They're not normally met with people who want to take time and befriend them or listen to them. So just listening to them makes, makes a big impact. But we just, we just need to get their minds thinking, ask questions, and to challenge their beliefs. I mean, I think a great tactic, and, and Greg Fogel has a great book on tactics called that, is to simply ask questions. Yeah, I remember one of the most amazing times I think I'll never forget it. It was uh, it was right around 2009, I think it was. And myself and Melissa had went to um, might have been for uh, Professor Beaumont's Colton Religions class, a, mm-hmm. um, a Watchtower, or uh, I'm sorry, uh, Kingdom Hall. <laughs> sorry about that. Okay. Uh, and it was I'm trying to think when it. And it was probably around Christmas or something. It was one of the big events. And um, we had got to talk to uh, one of the guys there that was an elder. And we had previously ran into him at a friend's house. Uh, our friends uh, had invited me and Melissa to come over, and these Jehovah's Witnesses were coming. And it, it, for whatever reason, my, my friend was just not really thinking too well, and he just it got really ugly and he threw them out, and it was just, it was awful. 
And yeah. uh, so when we got the chance to see them again, I mean, we were all over, and we, uh, you know, just we we told them how much we, you know, appreciated them and invited them to come over to our house. And so here it is, uh, Christmas Eve. Uh, they come over to our house and sit down, and we give them a meal, and we we just we watched one of their videos. Uh, you know, they brought a, a video from uh, the Watchtower Bible Track Society, and just it, mm-hmm. it's like you said, sitting down, talking with them. Uh, but we had an incredible conversation uh, that night about some of the the, the bigger issues uh, that we that we had, and we were able to kind of keep an ongoing dialogue for a little bit. Uh, but I, I think you're right. It's just it's it's very important to 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 realize these people are not the enemy. You know, they they right. may work for the enemy, but they themselves are not the enemy. <laughs> That's right. In fact, so, if we just listen to them, they're more apt to be able to listen to us too. If we just be, if we right. give them respect and friendship, then they will reciprocate that as well. One of the things you mentioned uh, real quick before we jump into this, the sociological aspect of, um, uh, you know, if you got your friend with you, you can't even really act like you're interested because of the peer pressure and that. Right. What, what do these people face uh, if they do convert? Well, they can, they can face lots of different things. Um, it depends on, on their own specific circumstances, but it has been the case that people have been basically ostracized from their family, um, cut off from the family, cut off from their friends, and just basically kicked out of their lives, and they have to go somewhere else or start over. They're basically shunned. And of course, that's one of the worst-case scenarios for something like this, but it is very real, especially for Jehovah's mm-hmm. Witnesses and, and Mormons. And um, it's it, it's the fear of, of you know losing the ones you love, um, having to possibly even move, um, depending on you know where you work, you might lose your I don't know you might lose your uh, friends at work or whatever. It depending on the circumstances. But we're talking about the possibility of a total life shift because of it of a, uh, a conversion. And people, and I've even heard of Christians being ostracized for their faith because they're not in a certain denomination, but it's it's much more real and um, much more often the case in uh, these groups that have witnesses or, or Mormons. It just depends on the circumstances, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, well, they're, they're also threatened with eternal, self, you know, torment, or, well, of course, Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that, but, you know, just right. severe consequences if they if they convert, so. Exactly. Well, Good deal, Brian. Uh, tell us who are the who are the Jehovah's Witnesses. I, I don't know if you had an outline or not, or if you just wanted me to ask you some questions. I didn't want to. I didn't know what you wanted to do. Okay, you can just ask questions. I'm fine with that. I was um, what I had in mind to do was just touch and briefly touch on you know who they are, where they came from, and then. Mm-hmm maybe highlight some of their beliefs and then how to respond to them, and then also want to give your listeners uh, some resources to go to. You can just ask questions. You can go that way if you want to. But to answer your first question, um, there are a group of people, a very numerous group of people growing uh, every year. Uh, many, like other cults, like the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses um, really came out of dissatisfaction of, of mainline Christianity. In fact, it's the, the founder, Charles Chase Russell, was a Presbyterian, and many of their first, uh, first leaders were Christian of some sort and some denomination. And they didn't they didn't like 
some of the doctrines of Christianity. They didn't like the doctrine of hell, for example. And they wanted to purify their, their, their teachings. They wanted to start what they thought to be the real church. Of course, we only know what their motivations are based on their, what they say and what they write. But they're a group that comes out of uh, alleged dissatisfaction of orthodox historical Christianity. And they grew out of, of a, a reaction, basically, to that. And it kind of snowballed. It's been snowballing um, over the decades. It really started in um, the latter half of the 19th century, again, with Charles Case Russell. And it's gotten bigger and bigger uh, ever since then. And they uh, spread across the country. And one of the things they have to do that makes them so much uh, larger every year is they go around door to door and they pass out literature or they, they talk about their faith. They try to convert people um, from their homes. They, they, they're abroad, actually. They, they're across the globe. Um, like the Mormons, they go and they, they do missions to other countries and try to, to do mass conversions, and they're very successful at it. They're, they're growing exponentially. Wow. I know that there's some some severe... Well, let, let me ask you this real, real quick. I'm not sure if you'd uh, hit on that or not. In America, how many would you say roughly maybe compared to uh, Mormons or other pro- or, or Protestant denominations, um, how, how many Jehovah's Witnesses are there in America? Okay, let me give you some statistics from a PowerPoint that I have from Ron Rhodes. In fact, one of the resources I was going to share with your listeners is um, a lot of resources by Ron Rhodes. And if you just yeah, go to, uh, I'm not sure what his, what his website is, but if you just Google Ron Rhodes, R-H-O-D-E-S, he gives current statistics, which are years old now. This is outdated. But according to what he said several years ago, he said the current statistics on the Jehovah's Witnesses is that they, um, they pour out over a billion man hours. They offer Bible courses by the millions every month. They have their publications in over 100 languages. Uh, they have 5 million copies of the first printing of, of their book. Their particular translation of their Bible is called the New World Translation. There are 3 million copies of those. And the magazine, their magazine uh, called the Watchtower Magazine, about 25 million. And uh, says, I think from basically what the numbers I'm seeing here, there are about 47 million Jehovah's Witnesses. And there are uh, about four to six, yeah, about four to six new churches. They call them kingdom halls, made every month. And I, I've been told that the, the kingdom hall can go up in just a couple of days. They they just they, have a lot of people. They, there yeah. yeah, on YouTube yeah. you can actually watch it where they can have a whole building up like within the weekend. It's incredible. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Right. There's not much to it, but there are a lot of them, and they go out very quickly. And so they house these uh, 47 million or so, and it's growing. That number is probably very outdated even now. Wow. Well, what's I guess some of the some of the bigger issues? Maybe we can look at um, some of the divide uh, as well. The nature of God. Uh, maybe we could we could start there. How is the nature of God different? Uh, within these two systems of, of Orthodox Christianity and the Jehovah's Witnesses. Okay. Well, for um, for a Jehovah's Witness, as opposed to 
well, we saw it as the Christian, the historical Orthodox Christian first. We believe that God is immaterial, that he is personal, that he is omnipresent, that he is everywhere, he's omniscient, that means he knows everything. He's not, uh, the Orthodox view is that God is not bound by space or time, um, and he's all-powerful. We hold to the doctrine of the Trinity, it's going to be one of the central discussions probably what we're going to be talking about with the Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah, their view of God is that he is finite, whereas our God is, is infinite. Um, he's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. Um, his angels really are his, his uh, people who uh, function basically as his messengers to tell him what's going on. His, his name is Jehovah and is not a trinity. Um, there, are no, there are not three persons in the, in the divine nature. There's only one person, namely the Father, or Jehovah. And as we believe that Jesus is completely God, equally divine with the Father, Jehovah's Witnesses hmm. believe that Jesus is a created being whom God the Father, or Jehovah, used to create everything else. And whereas we believe that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, equally divine with the Father and the Son, the Jehovah's Witnesses teach that the Holy Spirit is not a person, but rather an active force. In fact, in their New World Translation, reading in Genesis 1, their text says, uh, in beginning of verse 2, Now the earth proved to be formless and waste, and there was darkness upon the surface of the watery deep, and God's active force was moving to and fro over the surface of the waters. We would read God's Holy Spirit or God's uh, Spirit being a person in the Trinity, where they deny the Trinity. And so God to them is not at all the God of Orthodox Christianity. He is finite. He is not omniscient, omnipresent, or the Trinity. Jesus is created. In fact, they hold him to be um, the Archangel Michael. And the spirit, rather than being a person, being divine, is a force that God uses to accomplish his means on this earth. So let me ask you this. Uh, so, for example, um, you have uh, Presbyterians, Lutherans, and maybe I'm leaving some other groups out, but they may practice something like infant baptism. But then you have, you know, Baptists, Methodists, Assemblies of God. They don't practice that. Mm -hmm. um, would we divide over an issue like that? You know, my, my, my question is, are the, are the divisions, or are the doctrines that you're talking about, is that something that would keep us from fellowshipping with Jehovah's Witnesses? Because it seems like, you know, in different denominations of Protestantism, you have different um, different doctrines on certain issues. So why do we, why does the Baptist not divide with the Presbyterian, but we should divide with the Jehovah's Witness? Oh, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, the issue of, of things like infant baptism or what translation of the Bible to use or what style of worship to use, um, those kind of things, the nature of the Lord's Supper, those are very, very important issues. But the nature of God and the deity of Christ and the nature of the Trinity are going to be fundamental issues. Whether or not we baptize a baby by sprinkling or by dunking a baby or a person 
in water is certainly important, but it's not a fundamental issue. Right. It's not something that's going to make a heretic out of us. And that's, I know that's a bad word to use nowadays. <laughs> but historically, for example, if you denied the Trinity or the deity of Christ, you would be, and in fact, even if you were baptized twice, you'd be killed. But the uh, these issues of um, the nature of, of God, what he's like, the Trinity, these are so much more fundamentally important than, say, the mode of baptism, whether we speak in tongues or whether we should have a guitar in service or not. These right. are things that are so important that they don't just make our our differences denominational, they make our our faith different. In fact we would not we would say that a, a Lutheran is a Christian and a Catholic right. is a Christian and that a Baptist is a Christian. But if somebody who denies the key teachings of the creed and the scriptures to such an extent that they cannot hold the basic fundamental teachings of Orthodox Christianity, then by definition they're not Christian. Because we, we right. hold that we are Christian based on what the, the Word tells us and based on the interpretations of the Word on church authority and the, and the creeds, not in an ecclesiastical authority like, like the Catholic Church or something, but like the creeds that, that make something orthodox, like the right. nature of Christ, his deity, his humanity. Once we reject those fundamental aspects of our faith well, that make us Christian or non-Christian, those those are the very things that that uh, just do make us Christian or non-Christian. If you deny the deity of Christ, then even if your position is correct, let's say that they are that those witnesses are, are correct in what they believe, then we have to be wrong for the nature right. of reality and for the nature of, of contradictions. Uh, and so that that's the reason that we divide, not because we just don't like them, or not because right. we're just picking things to. Uh, you know, haphazardly to agree on or disagree on, but that these issues are of fundamental importance. In fact, um, there's, a, there's a saying, you know, in, in, in essentials, unity, um, in non-essentials, liberty, and all things, charity. Mm-hmm. The essentials would be God's nature, the deity of Christ, the trinity, inerrancy, those kind of things. The non-essentials would be things like the mode of baptism, we have musical instruments in service. Uh, should we use the new international translation or whatever? Those are, are non-essential. In other words, they're not tied to our salvation. Now, some yeah, churches would hold that they are. Mm. You want to talk about that for a minute? Well, yeah, I was just going to say that. I know that, there's that, some, that, like, that that church are, Christ, are, some Church of Christ and right. some, they, some they will legalistic. Right. They will teach, as, as an example, you just gave the Church of Christ, that um, being baptized, not just the mode, but just the fact of being baptized, is a prerequisite or a necessary condition for being saved. Um, other things uh, like that, whether you uh, go to a certain church or a certain denomination, in fact, um, Church of Christ in particular believe that they are the true church. And, and in fact, there is a... Um, this is a one denomination where you can be ostracized from not being part of the Church of Christ, much like not being part of the Hope of Witnesses. But those are right. those churches who believe those kinds of things that, that baptism is, is required for salvation, um, those are those those pro- proclamations in those kinds of churches 
aren't mainstream. It doesn't make them right or wrong. They're just not, not the norm. And Orthodox Christianity uh, doesn't teach that, that baptism is a, for example, just using an example, that baptism is a uh, necessary for salvation. Right. But things like, yeah, things like the, the, the deity of Christ and his humanity and, and those things, those our, our salvation rests on what those are and the nature of, of those aspects. Yeah. Um, Kenneth Samples, I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Ken Samples. He's a Christian philosopher and apologist. Uh, wrote a book called Without a Doubt. And in that book, he actually has a – it's a really great book. He's got, a, he's got a whole chapter on the creeds and the confessions and the need for why we, why we need them. And uh, to me, one of the frustrating things, I guess, as a Protestant is seeing how a lot of times the, the creeds and confessions are just thrown to the side, like they're, they're useless, right. we don't need them. And I, I just think they're so – it's so important to, to know them, to be saying them, uh, because it, it forces you to do theology. It forces you to to think on some of those things. And I think that's I think that's really a lot of times where the J dubs and the Mormons can move in and just cause havoc with the Christian right. because they just they, they get very easily confused on the issues like the doctrine of the Trinity, for example. Exactly. And that's why, me personally, I, I am more Baptistic in my beliefs. I'm an ordained Southern Baptist, but I do like kind of a hybrid service where you bring in a creed like you mentioned. Because reciting the creed from time to time will, will help us to understand our doctrine because it's a sad fact that most Christians, the average Christian, really doesn't know uh, his or her theology very well, what he believes. In fact, I've, I've taught world religions uh, for a while, and a lot of my students, especially in secular schools, uh, really don't even know that their denomination, say, is Protestant. I'll say, well, who, how many Christians do we have in here? Well, I'm not Baptist. Well, that's Christian. So if you don't know that you're that being Baptist is being Christian, that's not a good place to be. And so putting putting the creeds into our, our worship, and well, the creeds, they weren't just haphazardly put together. In fact, this is one of the accusations that JWs make against us is that the, the creeds and, and a lot of people, the creeds were just made just to put Jesus on a pedestal and to make him seem more divine than he is. And the creeds really show us a couple of things. They show us the historical backdrop of what's going on in those times and they show us the orthodox position of the church and then they become authoritative. And they're authoritative uh, and, and that they teach us what we should believe and how we should think. Not that we, we should have to interpret the Bible through them, but they give us a norm. They give us something to measure orthodoxy by, to measure belief by. And so they have a very, very important role. And as you said, if we know our basic beliefs, even as just as expressed in the creeds, we can tell at least enough to know that the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons or whoever, the one that's Pentecostal, whoever, are off. Mark. Yeah, uh, samples, Ken Samples in that book says uh, the creeds are, are like a fence that keeps, kind of keeps the yeah. bad guys out, so to speak, exactly. keeps, keeps the heresy right. out. So it's, it's very important to, to know the creeds and the, and the confessions. So um, let's see, let's, uh, 
I guess so. You talked a little bit on the the view of God. Did you? Uh, I can't remember now if you had hit the view of the Jesus or not in any detail, or if you wanted to add anything to that. No, I can reiterate, reiterate that. Um, they they hold that Jesus is a created being. He actually was an archangel and was uh, created by God. And uh, were you going to say something? I'm sorry. Oh no, nope. nope. You're 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 fine. Okay. Huh? He is a uh, a created being, and I'm actually flipping through um, one important book that your listeners can get if they want to know more about Jehovah's Witness theology. Is called uh, "Should You Believe the Trinity?" And I'm mm, going to be yeah. a little section from this. Let me just read this. We actually had him on our show. Yeah, we had Rob Bowman. We had Rob Bowman on the show. Uh, well, it doesn't get December. any better than that. He has the best point-by-point commentary on that book, uh, and his own book is called Why You Should Believe in Trinity. And uh, if you have mm-hmm. Rob, Robert Bowman, that's, that's about as good as you can do in response to this book. But their own book, the, uh, the Jehovah's Witness book, it's more like a pamphlet, really. It's only about 30 pages long. Right. Page 14, they say, While on earth Jesus was a human, although a perfect one, because it was God who transferred the life force of Jesus to the womb of Mary. Uh, But that is not how he began. He himself declared that he had descended from heaven, so it was only natural that he would later say to his followers, what if you should see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? Jesus had an existence in heaven before coming to the earth, but it was as one of the persons... Uh, he says, but was it as one of the persons in an almighty, eternal, triune Godhead? No, for the Bible plainly states that in his pre-human existence, Jesus was a created spirit being, just as angels were spirit beings created by God. Neither the angels nor Jesus had existed before their creation. Jesus in his pre-human existence was the firstborn of all creation, according to Colossians 1.15. That's one of their main passages for, for uh, arguing for this point. He was the beginning of God's creation. Um, beginning, they say, can't rightly be interpreted to treat or mean Jesus was the beginner, but that he was the beginning. And so they, they deny what we affirm, namely that Jesus is eternal, as John 1.1 1, 1 says, and that they will reinterpret that, retranslate that verse say something else, and they say that he, rather than being God, the second person of the Trinity, he was a created being, therefore he is finite, he is not part of God, he is a God, as they want to say in, in John 1, one. in fact I'll just read from again the New World Translation, let me read actually first from the English Standard, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the New World Translation, the Jehovah's Witness Bible, it says, in the beginning, the Word was, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. And so they, they deny that Jesus is fully divine. I think he's kind of a lesser deity than God, because he is created. Only, only Jehovah is completely divine, therefore Jesus being the creation of Jehovah and the means by which Jehovah created other things, as they argue from 
in Colossians 1.15. Is that pretty much what you were trying to get at? Yeah, yeah, just the, the real, because that's, you know, we talk about the issue, the, the doctrines that you die on, or the hill that you die on, and that's, that's one of them. The whole very nature of Jesus is so Exactly. I mean, you're so going to different. lose it there. In fact, um, a hallmark of being a, a, a member of a, uh, I know this is a bad word nowadays, but a cult group, is if you deny the Trinity, you deny the deity of Jesus, and you claim the Bible is corrupt. And virtually all cults and other religions will deny those things. That they deny Jesus as God, they deny the Trinity, and they deny the uh, the Bible uh, as a uh, as an inerrant word that they say that as Jehovah's Witnesses more and both say that it's corrupt and they need their own scriptures to, to fix it and to tell us what it really says and how it should be interpreted. Wow. That's good. That's 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 three <laughs> three things you should be looking for, uh, for exactly. sure. Let me let me go ahead and give the uh, the number if if people would like to call in and and talk with you. Uh, the number is seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven. And we'll go ahead and and uh, open up those phone lines if you have a a question, or you know, you don't have to be a, a Christian or even agree with us. Maybe you're a Jehovah's Witness, and or maybe you've been studying with Jehovah's Witnesses, and you wanted to challenge uh, what's been said, or maybe you have a question. Feel free to call in. We'd we'd, we'd love to talk with you. I promise you, we'll we'll be nice to you. <laughs> uh, Watch Teller and, and uh, Bible Track Society. Did, did you want to talk a little bit about the nature? Uh, of authority between the Jehovah's Witness and the and the Christian. Sure. One thing that makes Jehovah's Witnesses unique is their hierarchy of authority. Um, they they demand total allegiance and authority to the Watchtower Society or the Watchtower organizations in interpreting the Bible. They don't think that the average person is equipped uh, to interpret the Bible on his own. So the Watchtower Society basically dictates, determines, infuses, and tells their people what to believe and how to interpret the scriptures. And they actually publish, as I've already mentioned, a, uh, a magazine that's published by the millions, and that's, that's just part of their, their authority structure. This is in contradistinction to the Protestant Christian who believes that he is a, a priest among other believers, who all, all believers being a priest unto God because God has made uh, it possible to come to him directly and to be able to study his word. That his word is written for all people, not for a select few who have certain training or certain authority uh, by, for example, for example, the Watchtower Society. And so the, the average Jehovah's Witness cannot make his own determination as to what the Bible says. He has to be in, in agreement and in concordance with the Watchtower Society, and if he rejects the Watchtower Society, he again can be basically kicked out and, and ostracized by the group. Wow. So he, again, you have that kind of that sociological uh, aspect, and it's the uh, demand, like you say, uh, total total allegiance. Um, let me ask you: Are they allowed to read other uh, other works? So, for example, if you want to. If you're a Protestant and you want to engage in debates with Muslims, you can read the Quran. Uh, what if you're a Jehovah's Witness? Can you read other material or are you encouraged to? Or 
Are you talking about while they're on their missions or just in general? Just in general. Just in general. So like yeah, some I don't, of the I don't know of any prohibition. I yeah, I, I don't know of any prohibition um, from the Watchtower Society. There may, may be some. I don't know of any that, that prohibits them from reading other works. Um, I don't know about their mission. That, that may be different. For example, uh, Mormons cannot read anything other than the Book of Mormon or there any of their four scriptures while they're out doing their mission. And I, I wow. don't know as I don't know if it's that strict with Jehovah's Witnesses or not. I don't think that prohibition exists for the average person when he's not on his um, when he's not on his mission. Okay. There may be that if I'm not aware of one. Okay. Great. That's 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 what I was was curious of because I'd heard uh, people say before that and some of the Jehovah's Witnesses that I've talked to seem to be very uh, reluctant to read uh, some of the other stuff. But the Watchtower puts out, I mean, they put out a ton of of all kinds of different books. I mean, they right. uh, creation versus evolution. I mean, it's it's all over all over the place. And and I guess the books are free as well, right? And I know oh, well, even the, the yeah, I'm, I'm not... stuff they do. Yeah, the stuff they do at the Watchtower, it's all ran uh, by volunteers. Uh, really, okay. there's a great DVD called In the Name of Jehovah, and uh, Ron Rhodes is in that with several others, and they, they do a whole tour of the Watchtower uh, Society, and they show you the, the printing offices and how everything runs. And I mean, it's amazing. I mean, it's like thousands of volunteers through the week, and I mean, it's it's a machine. <laughs> Right. They probably get that volunteer force, I'm not saying this for everybody, but one of their ways of salvation is by doing things, by doing work, by being on the mission, by passing out tracts, by evangelizing. That's part of the work they have to do in order to merit uh, favor and salvation from God. And the Mormons are, right. pretty, are pretty much the same. They, they say that you know, we, God gives us grace after all we can do. And so mm-hmm. both groups, and this is, again, another mark of, of a cult, is that we have to earn our salvation by doing things. I think it's probably part of the uh, manipulation of the, of the top-down structure. So they get a volunteer for it by saying, you have to go do this in order to be saved. But of course, they don't say that, and that might not be their motivation, but it comes across that way. But they, they do have this motivation, no matter where it comes from, to go out and, and evangelize, pass out their tracts, do their work, uh, as part of their, their retaining their salvation. Well, Brian, let's do this. Let's take a break for uh, two or three minutes and give people a chance to call in. And uh, maybe when we come back, we can look at some of the particulars uh, on how to answer some of the objections that come, uh, like Colossians 1.15 or Revelation 3, Proverbs 8, some of those basic objections that come against the uh, the deity of Christ. So that that good with you? Sure. All right. So we will go ahead and take a break for a couple minutes. Uh, I would encourage you guys to call in at 760-542-3907. Be back in a minute. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. apologist. If you had one minute to be able to unpack for the audience, we interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. Dr. Howe, what do Jehovah's Witnesses believe? Jehovah's Witnesses, let's look at what they believe about Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses actually believe that Jesus Christ is Michael the Archangel from the Old Testament. 
who became a man in the New Testament, did his work for God, and then now is Michael the Archangel again. So he's not God in the flesh as Christianity and the Bible has always taught. What would they say about salvation? Most of these groups, in fact, I don't know any of these groups that, that, that doesn't say that salvation is by works. And note, and Jehovah's Witnesses are very explicit that a person cannot be saved by faith alone, but has to do the appropriate works in order to be able to be with God after death. Over three chapters, the book of Genesis vividly describes a worldwide flood that began with all the fountains of the great deep bursting forth and the floodgates of heaven being opened. The reality of Noah's flood is the crux of the conflict between evolutionary and biblical worldviews. If this global deluge really happened, then the millions of years of earth history and evolutionary progression supposedly seen in the fossil record are swept away. The flood accounts for the major geological features and the vast majority of the fossil record. Indeed, the fossils themselves are a mute testimony to the truth of the flood. We find billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. Just what you would expect from the biblical account. If Christians were to believe and effectively defend the biblical account of the flood, then the basis for the evolutionary worldview would largely collapse. Many people would be saved from such a great pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. To find out more from Creation Ministries International, visit our website, creation.com. This is John MacArthur inviting you to join me for Portraits of Grace. Men, have you ever been at work and realized you forgot to shave? Well, that's a good illustration of what it means to hear God's word and forget to respond. James said, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looked at his natural face in a mirror. This is not some casual glance either, but a careful observant stare. Yet even a long hard look is worthless if you walk away and forget what you saw. If you fail to respond because the image reflected in the mirror will soon fade when you don't make the corrections. Perhaps you've been putting off something that you know God's Word is instructing you to do. If so, don't delay. This is John MacArthur trusting that you'll look into the Word of God and become a true portrait of grace. Theology Matters with the Palouse, and we are here with Dr. 
Brian Huffling from Southern Evangelical Seminary, and we are uh, looking into some of these doctrines uh, dealing with the differences between Jehovah's Witnesses and Orthodox Christianity. And we've so far looked at uh, kind of the origin of the, the Jehovah's Witnesses, their view of God, their view of Jesus, a little bit on the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. Uh, Dr. Huffling, talk maybe a few minutes before we, we get into some of the particulars. Uh, talk to us about their, their Bible. Because uh, when you sit down with the Jehovah's Witness, you notice uh, sometimes there is quite a bit of differences uh, in the way <laughs> things are, are worded. Exactly. Um, their Bible, again, is called the New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures. Um, it's, it's their translation. I think it's a more accurate translation than one of our translations in uh, Protestant Christianity or even in Catholicism. It changed a lot of things. For example, when we, when we see the Holy Spirit referred to in a traditional Bible, they will retranslate that to mean an act of force. So I read from Genesis 1, we saw that. Um, read from John 1, again, we see that they believe the text in John. This is one of the more popular examples. It says, in the beginning was the Word, or the Word was, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. And so they, what they do is they insert an indefinite article there uh, because they don't think that Jesus is God. And because there's no definite article in Greek, they right, right there, they argue that the indefinite article should be supplied, thereby making Jesus a lesser god or some kind of mini-god. And, in fact, he had mentioned Colossians 1.15 and following, and one of the things they do there is try to argue that Jesus is a created being, and they, they add words into the text that aren't there, for example, they say that he created everything else or that all other things. In verse 16, we read, because by means of him, all other things were created in heavens and upon the earth. Um, no matter whether they are thrones, lordships, or governments, all other things have been created through him and for him. Also, he is before all other things, and by means of him, all other things were made to... You know, the word other does not occur there in the original Greek. There's supplying it there to fit their theology. And so in several places across their own translation, they, they change things to make it fit what they want it to say. So, for example, we in John 1, verse 1, uh, they argue that because the word the, the definite article, is not there in Greek, we should have an indefinite article in its place. And this is going to be one of the scriptures that probably they are going to bring up to you if you talk to them on your doorstep. And one thing they can point out to them is that um, the word God in the New Testament, and their translation Jehovah, because they always want to say that the word Jehovah is God's true name. That's why they call Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, Jehovah for them, um, the word Jehovah occurs 282 times, we're told, uh, in Daniel Wallace's intermediate Greek text, one of the standard Greek texts on the market. He's actually quoting R.H. Countess. 
saying that the word Jehovah or God occurs 282 times without the word God. Only 16 out of those 282 times is it translated any kind of indefiniteness, like a God, godly, God. That gives us a 6% uh, rule, or 6% of the time they're following their own rule on this. And so it shows that they're inconsistent, and it shows that they're selective in how they apply this alleged rule. And so their their Bible, their New World Translation, is just riddled with places uh, that they they just don't like the original reading or translation, and so they give an alternate translation to fit their their preconceived theology. I worked with a guy who was who was a Jehovah's Witness, so I was a security guard at the time, and basically we would just. sit outside and we had a metal detector and how to check people, but we would just sit out there for 12 hours a day and debate. <laughs> I remember yeah. uh, this is one of the issues, and I remember showing him Colossians 1, uh, 15 through 17, and showing him that the word other was in brackets, and showing him in, the, in his Bible where it says if it's in brackets, that means it's not in the original, it's being supplied. And uh, you know, he read that with, and he said, "You know, there's, there's no way it could not have the other in there because if it, if if they weren't there, that would mean Jesus is God." Yeah. <laughs> Are you saying like, that in in your Bible or his Bible? It was in brackets. In his Bible, in the New okay. World Translation, well, he has in brackets. Yeah. Oh, well, okay. Well, yeah, his his did. It actually okay. said. Um, it told told you at the front because I uh, he had, he actually gave me one. Uh, and it's okay. sad, you know, if, the, if it was in the brackets and it's been added, it wasn't in the original. And I showed him that. And I was I was showing him, look, if you don't use the word other, that's what you get. And it was like his, the presupposition was Jesus can't be God, so therefore it can't read like that. Exactly. <laughs> um, in fact, ironically, yeah. I got my New World translation from some Mormons <laughs> who had gone to the kingdom oh, wow. hall later that, that night. And they, you know, they knew I wanted. I wanted to have a kind of like a, a three-way debate going between us, or me and my wife, and the Mormons and the JWs. Because I've never really seen the JWs and the Mormons go at it. I wasn't sure what was important to both of those groups in terms of their own debate. So we were trying to work yeah, out that kind fun. of thing. So they they brought me a, a New World translation. Um, yeah, so that got that out of a bit of an interesting way. But you're right. If 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 uh, if it doesn't have other, it's going to imply that, that God, that Jesus is God, because as we see in Isaiah 44, 24, uh, reads, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. You can't be any more emphatic than that. And so if Jesus is the one creating things, it's hard to see how uh, God the Father or Jehovah a separate being altogether from Jesus could also be the one creating things. Now, someone might say that Jesus is being used as a secondary cause, but it's hard to hold that when, when Isaiah, when God through Isaiah is saying, I made things by myself alone. It's, it's right. hard to read a secondary causation there. And so you're right, if we don't have the word other, and it is not in the Greek, and that is not up for debate, it is simply not in the Greek. Um, that it, it seems to indicate that Jesus is God, and, that, and the Bible does teach that Jesus is God. Let me, uh, maybe, if you don't mind, we could look at maybe some of the particulars and just get your 
kind of how you would respond if I'm a Jehovah's Witness. And, and this, this, these kind of objections are also brought up by Mormons. So, for okay. example, you have, uh, you have John chapter 17, and Jesus is praying to the Father. And one of the objections that comes up a lot is, hey, if Jesus is God, why in the world is he praying to God? And why is he okay. praying to the Father in John 17? Well, one of, and this is something that, that uh, Orthodox Christians have a hard time with, too, we have to make a distinction, and, and a, lot, a lot of times theology is muddied or distorted because we fail to make a distinction. When we talk about mm. Jesus, whether we're talking about his deity or his humanity. So mm. I would answer that when Jesus is doing things like praying to the Father, or when the text says something like Jesus didn't know the hour of the second coming, or he was hungry, or he wasn't able to do something, that we're talking about his humanity because it's simply the case that Jesus, according to Orthodox Christianity, has two distinct natures, a divine nature, fully divine, just as equally divine as the Father and the Holy Spirit, and a human nature that's equally human yet without sin as your nature and my nature. And so when the text seems to indicate that there's something limited about Jesus or Jesus is somehow inferior to God, what's probably going on is that we're looking at Jesus' humanity rather than his deity. And so when Jesus is, is sweating in the garden, and we're told that his sweat is mingled with blood, a, a condition that we now know can be caused by stress, where the capillaries actually rupture because of a high level of stress, we see Jesus' humanity shine through. We see Jesus being completely human. Um, in fact, we see him dying. Of course, we wouldn't say God died. Uh, so in an example in John 17, we're looking at more than likely an instance of, of uh, the gospel writer, in this case John, looking at Jesus' humanity and Jesus mm -hmm. praying to God from a human point of view. So it doesn't mean that Jesus... Because uh, I, I really see that's where a lot of the confusion comes is... Um, I think sometimes Christians will think, oh, Jesus stopped being God or become some right. type of a hybrid between, you know, 50% God or 50% man or something like that. So, right. And anything okay. like that will get us into some kind of uh, Christological heresy. Right. 760-542-3907, if you have a question on some of these topics or a, a Bible question uh, for Dr. Huffling, I know he's more than adequate to answer it. Uh, how about John 14:28? This one comes up a lot. Uh, if Jesus is God, then why does he say that the Father is greater than he is? Because you think, well, if he's God uh, and he's equal to the Father, then the Father can't be, can't be greater than he is because they'd both be infinite. How would you respond to an objection like that? Okay, well, there's two ways you could respond. Again, it could be, when he says the Father is greater than I, it could be referring to his humanity. And it could be referring to his function. Um, Jesus, as God, is equal in nature. But in terms of how they're functioning, we could say that there is uh, a difference in how they're functioning and that one could be a greater function. So, for example, Barack Obama is president right now. Um, I am not. 
So mm-hmm. there is a sense in which she holds, well, it's not a sense, he does hold an office greater than mine. Um, I am in the military. I'm a, a chaplain in the Air Force, so he's my commander-in-chief. But have the same nature. We're both humans. But his office is higher than my office. And so he is greater, not in his nature, but in his function of his office. And so that might be one way of alleviating the problem there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also looking at the fact that we're that Jesus here uh, could be referring to as his humanity. That's good. And that's, you know, be sure those kind of questions will come up all the time, folks. It's, um, right. They just totally ignore the passages dealing with the deity of Christ and will consistently right. go after those that are looking at the humanity of Christ. Exactly. And if we just make a distinction and ask the question, are we referring to the deity or the humanity, that alone will answer most of these questions. And it's not just Jehovah's Witnesses that have a hard time. The Christians, Orthodox Christians, Protestants, Catholics have a hard time with these kind of issues. Uh, so, for mm-hmm. example, I just thought a course in God, time, and foreknowledge. Um, we want to ask, you know, how can God do these things? How can Jesus be incarnate if God is eternal or that is without any kind of temporal aspect? And the answer is well, we have to remember that Jesus is not only God. He's also human. He has two natures. They're not confused. They're not intermingled. Uh, they're not uh, in any way crossing over each other. They're distinct natures in one person. And so these kinds of questions that come up about, say, Jesus saying he's, he's uh, lesser than the Father or doesn't know when he's going to come back for a second coming, any kind of limitation has to be a reference to his humanity. Yeah, that's, that is good. The... Uh... I know two folks can check out the Athanasian Creed, which was pounded out hundreds of years ago, and uh, really, I think, does a, a wouldn't you agree, an amazing job uh, making the, the proper distinctions within the, the Godhead. So let's uh, let's look at another one here. Luke chapter uh, eighteen, verse nineteen. You have Jesus uh, saying, "Why call me good?" Right? Because only okay. God is good. Uh, but if Jesus is God, then it would seem that Jesus would be good. But He says, uh, "You know, why are you calling me good if, if only God is good?" Yeah, there are several ways to answer. At least one way to answer, it, and the one that I, I tend to prefer is when He's asked that, He's saying kind of uh, trying to elicit a response. Why are you calling me good? Do you understand what you're saying? It's almost a rhetorical question, saying that if you, if you call me good, you seem to be implying that I'm God because only God is good. And per the transitive principle, if God is, if only God is good, as you've already pointed out, if only God is good, and you're calling me good, then you're calling me God. And so that's at least one way of, of answering this problem. If, if you don't have to see this as a contradiction in saying that Jesus is, say, is saying that he is not good. He's not denying he's good. He never, in this yeah. instance of this passage, ever denies he's good. Uh, it seems like, and we, we don't read, it's hard to read tone and those kind of things into the, a written text, but what probably is the case, and what the, the uh, answer I like best, is that Jesus is, is really trying to force him into understanding what he's saying. Namely, if you call me good, you're calling me God. Right, because he doesn't. He doesn't say, "Don't call me good." Exactly. He says, "Why? Why do you call me good?" Right, and that's a habit Maybe Jesus a has. Jesus is a uh, is an expert. There. I'm sorry. 
That's a little Socratic method there. <laughs> exactly. He is an excellent question asker. And it's a tactic that we can use uh, in all of our walks of life, and, and especially in our, our apologetics and dealing with cults, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormon, whatever, instead of just telling them what we believe, because um, they might shut us out, they might not be listening to us, but if we ask them a question, they can't turn us off. They might be able to reject the question we can keep asking them. If you ask a question, it forces them to deal with whatever we're talking about and whatever we want them to deal with. And Jesus asks questions a lot, and he used it as a specific tactic. And I think this is one of those examples of him using that tactic. That's good. Yep. Geisler, Dr. Geisler, one of my heroes of the faith, has wrote the book um, The Apologetics of Jesus. And uh, mm-hmm. it's a really good book. And he, he talks a lot about the different methods that uh, Jesus uses. So that is good. So um, maybe we could look at a couple of the other big ones. Um, I'm not sure if you've really gotten much detail uh, in this, but Colossians 1, 15 through 17, I know we've okay. talked about it a lot. Um, I know it, it confuses a lot of Christians because of, of the language. Maybe I don't know if you've got the text, if you want to if you want to read the yeah. verses and then walk us through that. Let me uh, let me read both from the uh, the ESV, which is a traditional uh, biblical text, and I read uh, the New World Translation as well. I read 15 through 17 in the ESV and the New World Translation. The ESV says, "He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation." And that's probably the phrase you're referring to that trips people up. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, the New World Translation will change this, as we've already mentioned, and it will read, uh, starting again in verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, because by means of him all other things were created in the heavens and upon the earth, the things visible and the things invisible, no matter whether they were thrones or lordships or governments or authorities, all other things have been created through him and for him. Also he is before all other things, and by means of him all other things were made to exist. Again, there was never an occurrence of the word other and the English Standard Version, which follows the Greek, and the New World Translation adds the word other several times, I think five times, uh, because it fits their, their theology better. So we have an instance here of insertions without any textual evidence. Words, there's no Greek manuscripts that will have these words other in them. They're being inserted by the authors or editors of the New World Translation. Furthermore, to answer the question how he can be the firstborn of all creation, to understand what's being said here, rather than the Jehovah's Witnesses being correct in saying that Jesus is the first thing that was created, what it means to be firstborn of something can mean you're the preeminent over it, you're preeminent over it, or you are the inheritor of it. So, for example, mm-hmm. uh, David is called, he was the lastborn son of Jesse, and yet he's referred to as the firstborn of Jesse, not because he was literally the firstborn, but because he's preeminent among his brothers. In fact, 
Psalms 89:27 says, "And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth." Well, he's not the firstborn in terms of being physically born. He's the firstborn in his preeminence. Right? Theologically, he's the firstborn over those in his family and those other kings. And so this is understood to be positional, not chronological. Very good, and that's that's really what you need. All you really need to show is the the, the different understanding, and that it doesn't it deals with with avoiding the uh, supposed uh, contradiction. Exactly. Some of the other things, just just I'm, I'm just curious. Uh, when I've talked to Jehovah's Witnesses in the past, um, you have several passages that say God, uh, no one can see the Father. No one can see him at all. Uh, but you have issues like in Genesis 17:1, Genesis 18:1, um, where their text says, you know, they see Jehovah and wrestled. With, I think it was the wrestled with Jehovah. Um, how did how how did Jehovah's Witnesses kind of get out of that? I've never heard thing? one confirmed with that specific example before. Um, uh, that was Genesis 17 you were talking about. Yeah, yeah, Genesis seventeen one, Genesis eighteen one, that uh, you know that says God was, um, you know, he was, he was seen. Uh, but then you have yeah. your other passages that say uh, that the that the Father cannot be seen. So I was yeah. just I would imagine again. I haven't I haven't heard them answer this problem in particular. It's almost the same problem for us as Protestants is that we really can't see the Father because he's not a physical being. But it can right. be manifested, or, the, or Jesus, as Yahweh, can be manifested in the flesh and take on a, uh, a physical, like an angel can take on a material uh, aspect, even though he himself isn't material, for the sake of our being able to see him. Um, I, I would personally see that as, as a, being in the same boat as a, as a, uh, a Christian. So I, I wouldn't level that against them, but um, I, I would Good imagine they would, they would try to give same same kind of answer, but I don't know for sure. Yeah, because it would just seem as as for Christians, because um, the Christophanies would explain a lot of that, wouldn't they? Yeah. As far as people seeing God, um, exactly. but I don't know. I don't know how you get around that if you're a Jehovah's Witness, because I think the text literally says Jehovah. Um, yeah, I guess it does, they would just. Um, yeah, I'm reading it in the New World, and it does say Jehovah. So, for example, in chapter 18 of Genesis, afterwards Jehovah appeared to him among the trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance. Um, I don't know. I, so, I'm not sure what, where you see a, a difference there between our position and their position. So, maybe you can help me see that better. Yeah, maybe I can't. <laughs> um, well, that's okay. I, mean, I, I wonder if you're if I was dull with it or something, or if there's something I just, I'm missing out of that, but um, I would uh, I would imagine, again, I haven't talked to them about this, so that they would give a similar answer that we would. Right. Okay. That, that works. Uh, let's see, I guess, uh, did you have any more as far as some of the uh, kind of common objections, maybe against the doctrine of the Trinity uh, that you see a lot okay. with? Uh, I know you would have the, the book, the... Um, uh, is the Trinity biblical or yeah, should I can't you believe remember the Trinity, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah should you believe one. in the Trinity? Yeah. Um, what is maybe kind of sum up some of the main arguments for something in, in that book and and walk us through how to how to answer that? 
Okay. Well, they're going to argue that, number one, there can't be a trinity of persons in the Godhead for several reasons, one being that Jesus is created, and since he is not equally divine, there's no way he could have any kind of uh, commonality in terms of his essence with the Father. And the same thing with the Spirit. If the Spirit is a force, an active force, not a person, then there's no way that uh, the Holy Spirit could have any share in divine essence. That being the case, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses will argue that uh, there just simply is no real formulation of the Trinity in the Bible, and that rather it is a pagan concoction, and that Christians borrowed Trinitarian ideas from their pagan neighbors. So, for example, on page 6 of, uh, of their book, Should You Believe the Trinity?, says at the bottom of the page, uh, Jesuit Fortman states, the New Testament writers give us no formal or formulated doctrine of the Trinity, no explicit teaching that in one God there are three co-equal divine persons. Nowhere do we find any Trinitarian doctrine of three distinct subjects of divine life and activity in the same Godhead. Now, if you took that statement, it would sound like this guy, he's a Jesuit, who is Catholic. It would make it sound like this Catholic uh, is denying the Trinity. And this is the one thing that, that we have to be very aware of in reading this book, uh, Should You Believe the Trinity. They're, they're very um, selective in what they want to say. In fact, even in their own quotation, there are two places that they, they cut out some of the text. And they have a habit in this book, as Bowman points out, uh, of distorting what the original author is saying. They don't ever give us an explicit citation of who they're quoting so that we can go look at them. They just give us some quote. They don't tell us where it comes from, what page it's on, or anything like that. And Bowman does a great job in his book why you should believe in the Trinity as to why they're wrong. And he shows us on his, in his book on page 23 and 24 the real quote that Foreman gives that says this, if we take the New Testament writers together, they tell us there is only one God, the creator and Lord of the universe, who is the Father of Jesus. They call Jesus the Son of God, Messiah, Lord, Savior, Word, Wisdom. They assign him the divine functions of creation, salvation, judgment. Sometimes they call him God explicitly. They do not speak as fully and clearly of the Holy Spirit as they do of the Son, but at times they coordinate him with the Father and the Son and put him on a level with him as far as divinity and personality are concerned. They give us in the writings a triadic ground plan and triadic formulas. And here's where the Jehovah's Witnesses start quoting. They do not speak in abstract terms of nature, substance, or person. Uh, let me skip a little bit. They give us no formal, here's a quote from them, they give us no formal or formulated doctrine of the Trinity no explicit teaching that in one God there are three co-equal divine persons, but they do give us an elemental Trinitarianism, the data from which such a formal doctrine of the triune God may be formulated. And so they have a habit of, of taking our scriptures and people who are even on our side and saying that there really is no such thing as a doctrine of the Trinity. It's just something that's been concocted from paganism and they give examples from paganism 
uh, like other other countries, like in Egypt or in the Hindu Trinity uh, or whatever. But mm-hmm. if you look closely, the, the sources that they're pointing to say nothing of the sort. They're selective. They change the quotes to make them say whatever they want it to say. And um, it just, it's basically false in how they're very deceitful, I think, in how they portray these writings. And they say that. Go ahead. I'm just, I'm just going to say, if I remember with that book, it's not even, they don't even, like, do footnotes, do they? Or do no. they? Nothing is cited. They, 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 they say who they're quoting or from what source they're quoting. Uh, sometimes, if they're giving, like, an encyclopedia, they'll get the encyclopedia from which they're quoting. But they never tell you what article from. They never tell you what page from. I have no idea how, how Bowman got these quotes that going through hours of painstaking research. Uh, right. finding things to rebut, to rebut them. But he's done that very successfully and shown very successfully that they are selective, uh, I think very deceitful, um, and twisting quotes to say what they want. So, for example, the next uh, line of attack is by trying to twist the church fathers and saying that they denied the Trinity. So, for example, on page 7 of their work, they say Justin Martyr, who died about 165 CE, or common era, or AD, um, he called the pre-human Jesus a created angel who was other than God who made all things. According to them, he said that Jesus was, a, was inferior to God and never did anything except what the Creator willed him to do and say. Now, on page 28 and 29 of Bowman's book, he does a good job showing what, what Martyr actually said. He says that Justin Martyr taught that the pre-human Jesus was God, not an angel. In fact, he quotes Martyr saying, The Father of the universe has a Son, who also, being the first begotten Word of God, is even God. And that, that right there just completely refutes what they're saying. Wow. Uh, now, I could go on and on about this. They say something about Irenaeus and Clement, of Alexandria and Tertullian, and Apollos' origin, and so forth. And they misquote them, they distort them, they're deceitful, and then we can go back and look and see at exactly what they're saying, what the people they're quoting are saying, it's nothing of the source. Right, so it's kind of a fast and loose with the text. Exactly. Uh, and again, their, their, next, their next argument is that they have a page of, of pictures on page uh, uh, 10 of their work showing pagan deities that they want to say are um, um, influencers over Christianity, uh, like the Babylonian triad of Ishtar, or even from Norway, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from the 13th century, which is ridiculous to even give that as an example. In fact, a lot of their pictures here uh, post-date Christianity. They've got pictures here from the 14th century CE or AD, uh, 13th century AD, 7th. And if anything, if there is any influence, it's going to be the reverse from Christianity to them, not the opposite. Now, there are some who predate Christianity, like Egypt. They give the triad of Horus, Osiris, and Isis. But there's nothing between the Egyptian gods that, that are uh, similar to the Christian god. The Christian god has one es- one, a being with one essence expressed in a free person. That is simply not the case with what we have with the Egyptian gods or the Babylonian triad of Ishtar or the Hindu trinity of, uh, of uh, 
trauma, um, uh, creating the names of, of the Hindu gods, uh, Brahman, um, if I if I could ask you, so I know the Watchtower is looked at as the prophet of God. So when they're writing those, like for example, they write that book, uh, "Should You Believe the Trinity?" Are they claiming that that is on the sta- same status level as like coming from God as far as prophetic work? Well, insofar as they are acting on behalf of the Watchtower. I don't want to. I don't want to say. I just don't know for sure if they want to say that it's it's from God like a prophet. I would I would tend to doubt that, but I'm not certain. However, they would say that because it comes from their watchtower and is sanctioned by their leaders, it is authoritative, and that if you denounce it, you're denouncing their authority, and therefore you are outside of their real communion and in danger of being um, disassociated with the group. So I, I don't but know see, whether it, it carries any kind of but. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, it would seem that, that that alone then, if you can demonstrate historically that they're just making factual errors on what the Trinity uh, is, whether they believe the Trinity is true or not, the fact that they uh, misrepresent it uh, to what it is, uh, you would think maybe a an argument against the authority of uh, the Watchtower, for example, because they don't even get the facts right. And you think that exactly. it's inspired by God or authoritative. Um, exactly. And not only that, but even in the beginning of their, their stages of their history, their, their leaders like Charles T. Russell and the following folks would constantly prophesy that, uh, that the kingdom would be established on earth. Like, for example, Taze Russell, Charles T. Russell prophesied in 1914 that God's kingdom would be set up on earth. And it didn't happen. They were disillusioned, and they uh, fell away from that. Same thing happened in 1925, and it happened several times. We have several factual errors, uh, both in their right. theology, their history, from their leaders in this particular text. Uh, but, yeah, I think I agree with you that, that these factual errors show that at least that they're, they can't be held on, uh, they cannot be held as, a, as an authority of, of any real source. Right. Well, we got just a, a few minutes left, uh, Dr. Huffling. Did you want to talk, uh, uh, maybe take a minute or two and talk about the different views of salvation and then kind of give us some of your con- concluding thoughts and if you have a, a website or some books or something you'd recommend? Yeah, I do definitely want to give your, your listeners some resources so they can they can go do their own research, which is very important. Well, just to quickly um, you know, compare the salvation, the views of salvation between an Orthodox Christian. Now, I'm having to bracket off Catholicism and Orthodox Christianity. They're a little bit different, but in terms of Protestantism, in general, we hold that, that, that salvation is by grace through faith alone, and there's nothing we can do to merit our salvation. That's simply not true with uh, respect to Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, for that matter, that they think that they have to merit their own salvation by doing things. So, for example, like going around uh, door-to-door doing their, their good deeds and that they are going to earn their salvation by doing good works. Where a Protestant would say that good works certainly has a place and a role in our life, we're created to do good works, and it's our good works that reflect on God and reflect, uh, show people God's glory, not ours, but God's. Those good works 
where we would say we're reflecting God's goodness and his glory, in the eyes of a Jehovah's Witness, they are the means by which to attain salvation. And so they think it has it has to be earned. Um, in fact, here's a, a quote on page 91 of Ron Rhodes' Challenge of the Cults and New Religions. It says, um, a former Jehovah's Witness says this, what the Watchtower means by free gift is that Christ's death only wiped out or wiped away the sin inherited from Adam. They teach that without this work of atonement, men could not work their way toward salvation. But the gift of Christ's ransom, sacrifice, is freely made available to all who desire it. In other words, without Christ's sacrifice, the individual wouldn't have a chance to get saved. But in the view of his work, the free gift which removed the sin inherited from Adam, the individual now has a chance. And so again, it's up to that individual individual person to do good works to be saved. Mm-hmm. Now, some of the resources I would recommend um, to your listeners are just a host of things out there, but some of the some of the places I think are, are really good are, um, again, just mentioned the Challenge of the Cults and New Religions by Ron Rhodes. In fact, if you just Google Ron Rhodes, he has a great website and things to say. You can, you can email him and ask him questions, and they'll get back to you. He has a great PowerPoint library, uh, as does Norman Geisler. If you, uh, if you are a presenter or a teacher, they have stuff you can buy, uh, very good PowerPoints on, on the cults and various things, and handouts. Um, so check that out. I can't remember the website, but it's, uh, if you just Google Ron Rhodes and search for his PowerPoint. Um, Ron Rhodes has a, a, a series called Reasoning from the Scriptures. One of them is with the Jehovah's Witnesses. That's a great source. He has other ones, yeah. like, like to the Muslims and Masons and, and so forth. In the case of Jehovah's Witnesses, if you're going to get Should You Believe the Trinity by the Jehovah's Witnesses, I, I highly recommend Robert Bowman's book, Why You Should Believe in the Trinity, and answer to, to Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, those are some really great sources. There are a lot of stuff out there. Um, sources by Norman Geiser from impactapologetics.com or normgeiser.com. Uh, there's just a whole host of stuff out there. Um, but but um, do your own research. Don't take my word for it. Go out there, read your own Bible, read their works to compare, and then be able to know their own stuff firsthand. Do your own research. Know their arguments. Know the uh, uh, responses to their arguments. And above all, uh, you're in the service of the Lord, and we're not in the, in the business of winning arguments. We're in the business of, of loving people and sharing God's word. Well, Dr. Hufflin, I really appreciate you coming on the show, and uh, we'll put those links up on our Facebook page, and uh, we look forward to having you back again in the near future. Thank you very much, Adam. You're worthy for having me. All right. God bless. God bless you. All right, folks, join us next week. We will be back with another edition of Theology Matters. We will have my good friend Braxton on and be talking about his new book on uh, core Christianity uh, invites you to join us. So you guys have a good week. God bless. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. The word justified means that you and I stand before God acceptable, spotless, 
pure and without sin. That God looks at us and says, there is no sin in that man. There is no sin in that woman. That he looks at us and we are now just in his sight. So all the blasphemy that we've done by choosing stuff over God, all the blasphemy that we've lived in by saying my way is better than God's, all the blatant sin of saying creation is better than God's is removed and God sees us as just. Much more than having now been justified by His blood. This is great news. Nothing about your effort in that text at all. Nothing about your might, your religious stamina, your morality, your cleaning yourself up. You have been justified by an act of God. Bottom line, you have not earned right standing in front of God by your effort or your cleaning up of your life. We have been made pure, standing blameless in front of God, not because of any kind of religious or moral pursuit, but because Christ died. And in His death, He absorbed all of God's wrath for you and I. And that's why the Bible says that for the children of God, we are not appointed to suffer wrath. Because the wrath bestowed upon you and I was absorbed by Christ's death.